You know, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we'll actually be uh, in Acts chapter 8 this morning. And so if you want to turn there, that would be fantastic. When I was at Biola University, um, the fairest Christian university in all the land, um, I'm not biased. But uh, when I was there, we had something that was just really hammered into us. And it was about taking the gospel uh, in every facet of life, area, every area of life. And uh, I learned there a missiology. Now, missiology is kind of the study of how to do missions and how to take the gospel um, around the world and to people that are unlike you and all that kind of stuff. And when I was at Biola, I learned uh, this phrase called the other. And it's a missiological phrase, which means the gospel is meant to be taken to the other. In effect, someone different than me. And so we see that actually depicted for us in the book of Acts where the gospel is being taken to the other. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says that we will, after receiving the Holy Spirit and empowered, we will become witnesses to Jerusalem and then to the others, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the missiology of other simply means this. It's taking the gospel to those who differ from you in language, in culture, in race, nationality, It's the other. And we actually see this in Acts chapter 8 where the gospel for the first time is taken to a people group, the other. And I think there's really good implications for us um, today on what we're going to see in Acts chapter 8. A couple things for us that will help us understand this. I've already mentioned in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's in a pivotal verse. kind of sets in motion how we should read the book of Acts. Remember. You have to have an encounter with the living God. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, encountering the living God, then you are sent on commission. But you have to have a vision first. You have to have a vision of who God is and what he's accomplished. And from that vision comes a commission, which means go out and be witnesses. And if you notice, there's a trajectory. There's an ever-expanding aspect to this verse. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that's an important concept, and you'll see this played out in Acts chapter 8. The other concept is this, and this is the, I guess, the theme of the book of Acts. And it is that we are witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ and by the Spirit. The first time I preached and introduced the book of Acts, that was the phrase that I used. And so I'm going to use that same exact phrase again. That we are witnesses, you see it up there, of the gospel, the good news. Of the kingdom of God, which is in Christ, that's an important component. The kingdom of God is in Christ, but it is by the Spirit. The Spirit is working. Uh, In the book book of Acts, in the opening, Luke, the author, says that the book of Luke, the gospel, his first installment, was the beginning of what Jesus was doing. And Acts is the story of what God continues to do in Christ through the Spirit. So let's read this together, and then we will pray, and we'll jump right into this. Acts chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. Saul approved of his being Stephen's execution. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, but don't worry. There's gigantic screens behind me with the words on them. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen in made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
Now those who were scattered about went, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages villages of the Samaritans. That's a lot. It's good. Father, thank you so much for this text. There's so much in it that is just rich and profitable. And so, God, I pray that you would help us this morning to glean from it what you will. God, help me to be helpful in the instruction and explanation. We pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon us, giving us illumination and understanding. And, God, ultimately we grant that this time is for you. And so work in us whatever you want. Do with this time whatever you will. And God will be thankful for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I love about this section of Scripture is the first time that we really see the gospel beginning to expand beyond a majority culture that is known as Jewish. Which means there's just a Jewish flavor to the city of Jerusalem. Everyone who's gathered there for the most part is associated with this majority culture, this Jewish majority culture. But for the first time in Acts chapter 8, we're starting to see the gospel go to a culture which is not a majority Jewish culture. It's the other. But why or how did that begin? How did the expansion of the gospel to the other, how did that, how did that start? We actually see it in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, he approved of Stephen's execution. If you remember what Larry preached on last week. When Stephen died, there was a a, a massive effect that happened. 
There was a ripple that has been uh, carried on even to today where you and I who are Christians are, are Christians in part because of Stephen's witness. A man full of the Holy Spirit and of power. And his witness, his faithful witness led to his death of which Saul approved. But the effects of that God has brought even to today. That amazing things have happened. And on that day there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So there's great persecution in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now that text is an indicator to us. Wake up. It's time, time to wake up on what's going on right now. In Jerusalem, the church is there in a majority Jewish culture. And they're enjoying fellowship with one another. But now there's a great persecution upon the church in Jerusalem. And the effect or the consequence or the result of that is the people scatter. Now where do they go? Well, they go to uh, Judea and Samaria. Now, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, but you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You remember that. And you will be a witness where? Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. Which means Judea and Samaria is the second uh, realm in which the gospel will be expanded. So the question is, how is God going to get the church into Judea and Samaria? How is he going to get the gospel expanding? He does so through persecution, which is just not what we as Americans typically think is a good plan. Because we, if we're being honest, our heart idols oftentimes are comfort and safety. And so when we experience persecution of various kinds, we scatter all right, but we try to scatter to like little social Christian enclaves where we can be safe and we don't have to worry about it. But that's not what these people did. They didn't find like a little Christian community with, you know, gated community and, you know, they moved to Idaho or Montana or whatever, whatever is uh, right now presumed to be like safe. They didn't do that. They went to Judea and Samaria and verse 4 tells us what they did. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So they understood that this persecution is not a sign that God hates them. It's a sign that God is on the move. That the promise of Acts 1-8 is being fulfilled in their midst. How cool is that? It's a remarkable truth, in fact. That God oftentimes can and will use hardships and persecution to accomplish his purposes. So don't waste your suffering. But in the midst of it, be a faithful witness. Who knows what God's going to do? We just trust him. And those who were scattered were witnessing, preaching the word. Now, whenever we see preaching the word in the Bible, I'm guilty of this and you might be guilty of this as well. Whenever we see the word preaching, we, we tend to like visualize what I'm doing right now. And so when it says like every Christian should go preach the gospel, you're kind of like, mm, nah. I don't like public speaking. By the way, you guys don't know this about me, but I am terrified of public speaking. But that's what God has me do, so I have to do it. But you can't envision what I'm doing now as preaching the gospel because the, the word preaching really means to, to um, I don't know how else to word it, but the verb form of gospel. It's to gospelize. It's the good news eyes. It's to announce something has happened that's good. It's an announcement. 
And we're coming out of graduation season, and so you're very familiar with the concept of announcements. Many of you received, like me, some announcements in the mail about some people you know who have graduated. So announcements kind of work like this. So-and-so has done this thing, and you should come over and celebrate. You get that? So little Susie has graduated from kindergarten, come and celebrate. That's it's how bad it's getting nowadays, so we celebrate kindergarten, <laughs> graduation. But... But you get the concept of it. So whether it's high school graduation, college graduation, kindergarten graduate, whatever, it's like so-and-so has done this amazing feat, come and celebrate. And that's exactly what sharing the gospel is like. It's, hey, here's this person named Jesus who is God come in the flesh, who has done this amazing thing. He has conquered sin, conquered death, conquered evil. He was spiked to a cross to pay for our sins. He rose victoriously from the dead. And now he's offering all of us to come and celebrate what he has done. You guys get that? It's an announcement. It's not about what we do. The gospel is not about us. Can you imagine that kind of nonsense if you receive a graduation announcement? Little Susie has graduated from Cal Berkeley and come celebrate and you're like, oh, I didn't know I graduated from Berkeley. Amazing. It's not for you. I mean, it's for you, but it's, it, it's not by you. You, like, you didn't accomplish it. So when we think of the announcement of the gospel, it's this person has accomplished this thing and we're invited now to celebrate. And that's what church is supposed to be. We're supposed to gather to celebrate. Celebrate all that Jesus is for us. Celebrate all that Jesus has accomplished for us. That's an amazing thought. So these people are going around making this glad announcement of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. They're not hiding in fear. They're out in the open celebrating. Verse 5. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, I encountered somebody at a coffee shop recently who told me that the Bible is filled with errors because of this verse. And I kindly reminded them that at this time, they didn't have maps. So when you say down, it doesn't mean south. It means down in elevation. So we quickly Googled whether or not Samaria was a lower elevation than Jerusalem, and behold, it is. Hmm. So, Verse 5, so Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Shocking. Philip, one of the seven Greek-speaking Jews from Acts chapter 6, he goes to Samaria. He's one of the people that have been persecuted and scattered. And what does he do as he scatters? He himself is proclaiming to the Samaritans the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said in verse 6. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, because unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Just imagine a scene for a moment. Paralyzed people who can't do anything are getting up and they're just dancing around and celebrating. And then the last uh, verse, verse 8, is kind of like an understatement. So there was much joy in the city. Well, duh. <laughs> of course there's joy in the city. This is amazing what's happening. Philip's out there preaching the gospel, performing many signs. They're all paying attention to him because amazing things are happening. And the power of the gospel is being displayed in Samaria. But I want us to understand that whether it's those who are scattered in Samaria, whether it's Philip himself, or even in verse 25 where it talks about uh, Peter and John going through the villages of Samaria, what they were doing, regardless of their life situation, they were doing the same thing every time. 
They were preaching the word. They were proclaiming Christ. Or verse 12, they preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 25, they spoke the word of the Lord, preached the gospel. Do you notice that regardless of where you are and what you're doing, the gospel is central. It informs and brings to bear on everything. That's amazing to me. And one of the things that is amazing is this gospel message can actually be honed in and a particular component or aspect of the gospel message could be upheld for a particular people group without ever compromising the gospel itself. What I mean is this. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter standing before a bunch of majority culture Jews preaching the gospel to them. And the source of his authority are the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that the Jews themselves believed were authoritative because it is the word of God. So he stands in front of them and he says, Moses said this, the prophets said that, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams and all the promises of God. And the men of Israel sat, sat there listening to this and went, whoa, our hearts are cut. We're laid bare before God. What should we do? And he said, repent and believe the gospel. Now, in Acts chapter 17, something else happens. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is standing before a bunch of majority Greek people. And he leverages in that culture their authority, like things that they believe are authoritative. So he stands in Acts 17 in the midst of all these Greek people. And he says, you guys believe this, do you not? And they say, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, good. Because I'm going to prove to you why Jesus is the Savior of the world through your own authoritative sources. You said you believe this. Yes, we do. Well, that stuff points to Jesus. Uh-oh. And now in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip is preaching to them the Christ. Now, unless we have a, a little bit of a background of understanding of who the Samaritans were, we won't necessarily understand this. You see, the Samaritans, uh, as a people group, they were what some of the Jews called half-breeds. Here's why. The Samaritans um, are the people as a result of what happened in the northern kingdom in the Old Testament, about 722 B.C., Assyria came down to the northern kingdom and took into captivity a whole bunch of the most beautiful, talented, um, smart people. And they repopulated uh, them in their own country. And then what they did is they took some of the kind of not so great people in the other areas that they, of the people that they conquered. And they transplanted them into the northern area of Israel. And when they transplanted those other people from all different walks of life they all began to intermarry, which means that um, the 100% Jews became less so. And their religion got all mixed up and their cultural values got all mixed up. And so the Jews who were 100% Jewish by nationality and race and also by religion and, and uh, like just kind of culturally, they despised the Samaritans because they thought they were a lesser people because they caved in to the culture and to the world. And the Samaritans, likewise, didn't really have fond thoughts of the Jews either. So there was animosity. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan should shock us. The Samaritan, who most of the Jews hated, that's why the priest walked over him. This Jewish man picked him up and helped him to heal. That should shock us. Whoa, two people groups that hate each other are helping each other? Yes. So the Samaritans were anticipating... 
the promise of Moses to be fulfilled. Here's the promise that Moses gave. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The Samaritans had a word for this person. In uh, Greek, we call him Christ. In Hebrew, Messiah. And for the Samaritans, they called him Taheb. Now, Taheb is the fulfillment of this promise from Moses because the Samaritans believed only in Moses' writings, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the only source of authority that they really held to. So they believed whatever Moses said is true, which is really interesting because that same verse is used by Peter in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, to speak to the Jews. But then later, Peter also says, and the other prophets as well. Now, we see this kind of depicted for us in the woman at the well. You're probably familiar with this text, the Samaritan woman who was at the well. Now, leading up in the beginning of that story, we're told that the Jews don't travel through Samaria. There's tension. There's animosity. But Jesus goes anyways, and he sits down next to this woman who's drawing water from a well, and he begins to converse with her. And as he begins to converse with her and tell her about things that are secrets in her own life, she looks at him and says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Ah, I perceive that you are Taheb. And then there's this thing that happens in John chapter 4, verse 28. The woman leaves her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Or could this be Taheb? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. The Samaritans were waiting for the Christ. The Samaritans were hoping for the Christ. The Samaritans, man, their whole entire identity was when God would bring the Christ figure, the Taheb, the fulfillment of Moses' promise. And so what did Philip do when he went to Samaria, knowing that that is their value system and that's what they anticipated and expected? He preached to them the Christ. In other words, I know you value this. I know this is important to you. Let me show you how Jesus informs that and fulfills that. And it was shocking. It was revolutionary. It was life-changing. But not only was the Taheb to be a fulfillment of the promise, the Taheb, that figure, was also supposed to be validated or authenticated by miracles. By miracles. And that's exactly what we see Philip doing, preaching Christ and then also performing miracles to validate his message, to authenticate it. You have to remember, though, when, whenever we see signs in the Bible, signs are meant to tell us about something. Think about it in, in just modern day. If you see a sign to a restroom, you don't think to yourself, oh, there's a restroom sign. Oh, just it, it exists for itself. Just to be an aesthetically pleasing thing. It's art. You don't think that. You see a restroom sign and you say that sign is signifying the direction and the location of a bathroom. Every sign is pointing to something. So when Peter or Philip or Jesus or Paul are doing signs, it is to point to something else. And what is it that it is pointing to? Well, throughout the scriptures, whenever you see miraculous signs being performed... It is because those signs are pointing to God intervening into time and space in the world in which he created and to demonstrate his kingship 
and the fact that he is king over a kingdom. In other words, where you see a sign, there you see the kingdom of God. That's what they're there for, to indicate the kingdom of God. So we see this actually depicted for us. You can see it in actually Daniel chapter 4. You probably remember this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's pretty famous. They're dancing around in a fiery furnace because Nebuchadnezzar thought he could get rid of them by throwing them into this hot furnace. And instead, they're in there dancing a jig and stuff. And people are going, are you kidding me? And they come out high-fiving and chest bumping. And everyone's like, this is unbelievable what I just saw. And so much so that Nebuchadnezzar, having seen this, he actually links this incredible sign to the kingdom of God. He says this in chapter 4, verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And then he says this. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, when a sign occurs, it's not to occur on its own for its own sake. It occurs to signify and indicate something else. What's more important, finding a restroom or just finding the sign to the restroom? Well, it depends on if you have to go to the bathroom. You can get that? But we have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, that don't, we don't become infatuated with signs. We don't come infatuated with miracles to where, where we're preoccupied with their presence without giving a second thought to what they might mean. So Jesus, in fact, says this in John chapter 4, verse 48. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He understands that signs and wonders, people need those kinds of things. Why? Because oftentimes they result in belief. That's why he puts it in the negative. If I put it in the positive, he says this, when you see signs and wonders, you believe. But you can also hear Jesus' exasperation, kind of. It's almost as Jesus is saying this, you want me to do signs. The reason why he said this is an official comes to him and says, my son is sick, can you heal him? So Jesus, almost exasperated, looks at him. Man, you guys always need me to do signs. The reality is, I'm, you don't even want me. You just want what I can do for you. And we actually see that played out when Jesus feeds the 4,000. They show up all hungry and tired and stuff, and he looks at them and he simply says, the reason why you're here is because you had your stomach filled. You don't want me. You just want what I can do for you. And if we're not careful as Christians, that can be true of us as well. We have to stop from time to time and just ask the real serious question, do I want Jesus or do I just want what Jesus can do for me? And when we want Jesus only because of what he can do for us, he becomes an ornament. And I'm telling you, the resurrected king is no ornament. He's Lord. He's king. He's savior. And we want him for his own sake. So we have to be careful that we don't prioritize the gifts of God above God being the giver of those gifts. We have to reorient. God is the giver. Treasure him as the giver. And don't treasure his gifts above him as the giver. Be careful. So the apostle John actually, in his gospel, in John chapter 20, reminds us of what signs are there for. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Just think about that for a second. There's so many things Jesus did that in the gospel of John, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's even more that he left out. 
But these things are included, are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is the purpose of signs? It's to bring you to a place of belief in Jesus. Signs are to point to Jesus. And if you're not being pointed to Jesus to treasure him with your whole heart, then the signs are pointless. So Philip preached Jesus as the long-awaited Christ to the Samaritans. He preached about the kingdom of God, which is authenticated by the signs he performed, signifying that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. And many Samaritans believed. We can actually see this in verse 12. They believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I'm not going to say a lot about Simon. But let me just tell you a couple things. One, as you can see actually in verse 9, he was somebody who used to say about himself that he was somebody great. Does that not strike you? Guy walks around, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm kind of a big deal. I'm somebody great. So he's a boastful guy. He's arrogant, obviously. And people paid attention to him for some reason. And the reason is because he practiced magic and he amazed people. And from the least to the greatest, people were just overwhelmed with this guy. This guy's amazing. And he apparently believes Philip's message. And it says, when he saw the signs and great miracles, he was amazed. I think what's amazing about that is the guy in his pride and arrogance who amazed others now recognizes that there's a power greater than his and he himself now is not the one doing the amazing but is the one who finds himself amazed. Wow, this is crazy. So the Samaritans received the word in verse 14, but something interesting happens. Something interesting happens. Now remember what we're talking about this morning. Our witness, our witness, we are witnesses, is the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ, which is by the Spirit, and it expands to the others. And at this point in verse 14, we see how the gospel begins to expand to the others, the others being the Samaritans. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, verse 14, heard that, the, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. I'm just going to stop there. The reason I'm going to stop there is because I think we gloss over that verse and we don't necessarily feel the weightiness of that as we should. Because you and I, for the most part, are not Jewish, nor are we Samaritans. So we don't understand the kind of the animosity those of you who've ever read Romeo and Juliet, you know the Montagues and the Capulets, you know, it's just bad news. Or the whatever the other one, the McCoys and whatever, Hatfields or whatever. So there's, there's, there's like intense animosity. They hate each other. So the Samaritans receive the word of the Lord and the people in Samaria, the leaders, the Christians there, send word to Jerusalem and Peter and John come back to Samaria. So Samaritans 
send word to the Jews. The Jews come to Samaria, but they hate each other. Oh, this could get ugly. Especially if we read Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, meaning to die and rise again, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a, a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, if you recall the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, do you remember one of the theological disputes that, that she had with Jesus? She said, we worship at Mount Gerizim, but you worship in Jerusalem. That's another reason why I hate you and you hate me. So when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, in effect, he's saying, I'm a Jew and I worship in Jerusalem where God should be worshiped. And the Samaritans are just hot and bothered about that. They're like, mm-mm, I cannot believe this. So when he comes to town and requests hospitality, they look at Jesus as a Jew heading to Jerusalem. No, we're not giving you any bread. We're not giving you any shelter. Who do you think you are? Ooh. And when his disciples, James and John, there's John. There's John. But remember in Acts chapter 8, verse 15, or 14, excuse me, Peter and John. There's John again. So John's in Luke, Luke 9. John's in Acts 8. And look at what John happens. What happens here? He saw it, the lack of hospitality. And they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Okay, okay, maybe you're not getting this. Okay, one of the last times the Samaritans saw the apostle John, he was sitting there breathing fierous venom, asking Jesus if we should have fire rain down from heaven to destroy this people group. So when Philip maybe is in Samaria and he's saying, hey, you know what, we should call the apostles into town, you know, Peter and John. Um, I, I don't, I mean, Peter maybe, but John's, mm-mm. Last time we saw him, he was trying to kill us. So just think about that for a second. Just think about that. John is heading to Samaria with Peter because he hears that they have received the gospel. Now, I'm going to get into it in a second. But let's read the rest of the text and answer a couple questions. Verse 15. They came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the reason why the apostles wanted to come to town was because they heard firstly that they received the gospel which is a huge phrase for us that you can't overlook. There's three times that, the, that Luke uses this phrase in the book of Acts. One in Acts chapter 2 where he talks about the Jews receiving the gospel and being cut to the heart, they repented. The second time he uses it is in Acts chapter 8 referring to when the gospel goes to Samaria. And the third time he uses it is in Acts chapter 11 when the Gentiles receive the word. Now, if you think about that for a second, that's exactly the pattern of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. 
So that phrase, receive the word, is not just something you just ignore. It means that this is the next installment of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. So right now we're watching the second component, the second aspect of God's promise of Acts 1-8 unfold before our very eyes. We're watching it. God is fulfilling his promise. But there's something interesting that happens here. It says they came down so that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Now, there's a lot of traditions within evangelical Christianity that use Acts chapter 8 as a proof for a two-phase salvation. What we mean is phase one is you hear the gospel and you respond with faith. Second phase is that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that is made evident by speaking in tongues. So some traditions would say, yes, you need to be baptized with water, but you also need to be baptized with the Spirit. And some traditions say, unless you're baptized with the Spirit, meaning speaking in tongues, you're not a Christian, you're not saved. And they use this text to prove it. And so what I want to do is this. I want to show you how I think that interpretation is actually wrong for two reasons. Okay, and I want to show you perhaps a better interpretation. Verse 15. So the apostles come down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So now we know that they believe they were baptized, but they do not yet have the Holy Spirit. The natural question is, why not? Why not? Why didn't they get the, the Holy Spirit right away? Good question. I'm glad you asked. I won't answer it yet. But remember, two reasons why I think there's a different interpretation that's a better one. First is the grammar aspect of it. Notice how Luke says this. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 16. For or because he had not yet fallen. He had not yet fallen. And that not yet phrase means that they were fully anticipating that he would fall on these people. But he didn't yet. Tracking with me. So these people believe are baptized and everyone sitting there is expecting that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And they're like, oh, well, that's weird. What is going on? So they summon Peter and John. Can you guys come check this out for us? Something weird's happening. I don't, we don't know what to do with, about it. So we shouldn't read this text as evidence for this is how normal Christians experience the Holy Spirit is, is by the second phase of salvation. That's not normal. This, this episode is not normal. This is extraordinary. This is abnormal. This is exceptional. It's not the normal way. So that's reason number one is the grammar. The second reason is this, is the context. I've already said this. In this section, they came down because they received the word, that phrase. Three times it's used. When the Jews received the word, when the Samaritans received the word, when the Gentiles received the word. Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. And so what we can say is this event is meant to capture our attention. And on purpose, God has withheld the Holy Spirit and delayed his coming in order to capture our attention. God wants to do something remarkable here. And he wants everyone to know it. So the question is, what remarkable thing does God want to do and demonstrate? And why did he delay sending the Spirit? Here would be my answer. God wants to make as remarkable as possible and as public as possible 
the reality that God is now embracing and accepting Samaritans as his own people, which would be shocking for the Jews. Let, let, me, let, me, let me help you with that. So two apostles show up to an area where they once threatened to call down fire to destroy people. And yet now they show up to call down tongues of fire to heal people. What happened? How did these angry, mad, hating people who wanted destruction now are coming to pray for healing? What had happened? Jesus is risen from the dead. And he gave the promise, Acts 1.8. So it is a public validation what is happening. It's a public validation. As these apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans, they are validating at that moment that both Jews and Samaritans are now one in a new community called the body of Christ, the church. That is significant. It's no wonder why Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Many of us know Ephesians chapter 2 because of verses 1 through 10, and we, we don't often uh, reflect on verses 11 through 22. Verses 1 through 10, if you remember, is, you know, we've all sinned and we've all trespassed, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved, not according to your own works. We, we know that. But the consequence or the result or the practical application of that is this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Here's how it should affect us on a daily basis. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that means non-Jews, Samaritans included. Remember you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, the other. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, meaning the Gentiles and Samaritans. And, he pe and, he, and peace to those who were near, meaning the Jews. For through Jesus we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is the practical application of the gospel. And it's this. Whether you are Jew, Samaritan, or Gentile, God is making a public declaration that his people, the church, the body of Christ, will consist of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. 
and they are the kingdom of God. We see this sung about in the throne room of God of Revelation chapter 5. John is standing there watching the angels and all who are gathered sing this to Jesus. You were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth forever. In the new creation, before God Almighty, people, angels, everybody singing about the glory of God. Because the kingdom of God consists of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. I love that. I absolutely love that because that means for me that the church is intended to be different. The church, if you think about it for a second, we, we're in a darkened room, a bunch of strangers singing. Dude, that's weird. That is weird. If it wasn't church, we'd all be kind of, this is bizarre. I don't even know these people next to me. Which is probably an indication we probably need to get to know them. But we're here with strangers singing love songs to God in the dark. What? And by all natural means, there's many of us in this room, naturally speaking, culturally speaking, that really have no business being friends. We have no interests. And yet here we are together in unity because our interest is the same actually. It's Christ. That we from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, even look, just look around, if you will, the diversity present in this church and all together praising God and celebrating what he has done. You know, in the new creation, it's going to be filled with people from every walk of life. And I love the church because in a lot of ways, the church is supposed to be kind of a brochure for the new creation, what to expect. When you go on vacation, you go to some website and you look at, you know, Bahamas and you look at all the pictures and what to expect and amenities. The church is supposed to be that for the new creation. In the work of Jesus, all those people who have been dispersed are now being brought together. All the animosity whether socioeconomic animosity, racial animosity, there's a reconciliation. And the reconciliation is not a process. It's not legislature. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And if we just imagine for a second that this podium represents as a sign of Jesus. If I take somebody who is just completely unlike me, African-American woman or whatever, and me. If her and I are both pursuing Jesus, you notice that proximity-wise, as she grows closer to Jesus and I grow closer to Jesus, are we not growing closer to one another? So we have to call one another. Come to Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's done. Come celebrate with us. People talk about racial reconciliation in America. It ain't going to happen apart from Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the king. What has he done? He's reconciled people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group and has made them a kingdom and priest to serve our God forever. You want to come celebrate with us? What you have to do is you have to do what the Bible says, repent, receive forgiveness, and welcome to the church. We are diverse. 
diversity is not quite reconciliation. The military is diverse, but it's not quite reconciled. But the church, reconciliation. I don't have enough time for the rest. Oh, I have two minutes. Or am I over by two minutes? Okay. Let me just summarize this. This amazing thing has just happened. God has made a public validation and affirmation that his people not only include the Jews, but now has extended to the other. And what what is Simon's response? He saw the spirit, verse 18, given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees that power and he goes, you know what I want? I don't want power from the spirit. I want power over the spirit. And I want to get that by paying for it. Mm -mm. So Peter says, you wicked person, may you perish with your silver. So what is the solution? He says, repent. I love verse 21 because he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And it reminds us. Your acceptance or your rejection by God is not dependent upon your race or your socioeconomics. Your acceptance is an answer to a question. Is your heart right before God? Regardless of your background, is your heart right before God? And the way to make our heart right before God is to repent, as he says in verse 22, to receive the forgiveness of sins. Unfortunately, in verse 24, Simon doesn't do that. Verse 25, though, when they had witnessed, that word testify is actually witness, when the apostles witnessed and spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, and along the way, look at what they did. They preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Brothers and sisters, that's our challenge. The church is supposed to be filled with the others who are different than us because God is most glorified in that. So our witness of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ by the spirit is to expand to the others. Brothers and sisters, let's be mobilized. Let's go. So Father, help us, I pray. For apart from your grace, we can do nothing. Apart from the empowering of the spirit, we cannot witness. So God, I pray for our church that you would grant us a clear vision of your beauty, of your glory, of your grandeur. That you would help us to embrace the gospel, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But God, we would also look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that you are in Christ reconciling people who naturally are at odds and are enemies and have animosity. God, you are our peacemaker. And you are building us together as the church to be a dwelling place for God. And you're doing that by your spirit. So God, make this church, which is your church of Golden Hills, I pray you make us a church that is filled with people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And I pray that you're glorified because of it. And God, we rejoice because of all that you are and all that you've done. For your glory, for our joy, God. In Jesus' name, amen.